Jema Rabach. I'm a partner here at Mercy View, and this evening we are reading Romans 11, verses 1 through 6. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Some of you may know the name uh, Charles, excuse me, Charles, George, George Whitfield. Um, theologian J.C. Ryle uh, once called him the chief amongst the English reformers of the 18th century. And in college, uh, Whitfield was actually a really interesting character. He went to Oxford, which you know, if you know anything about that university, very prestigious place to go to school. And while Whitfield was at Oxford, he joined a club this was the name of the club, the Holy Club. And this club would do some very interesting things together. They would get up every morning, very early in the morning, regardless of the temperature, and they would do their uh, like devotion time outside. Um, they would get up um, very early to do that. It didn't matter how cold it was outside or how hot it was. This was their, their rhythm at night. When they would go to bed, they would review their day and they would uh, see uh, uh, to it that in their journal, they would begin to write out every sin that they committed, that they knew, sins of, of commission that they knew they had committed that day. All of them, all the sins, all the faults recorded in their diary. They fasted every Wednesday and every Friday all day. They visited uh, Oxford's prisons and the poorhouse that was there. And each member of the Holy Club would contribute to a fund that relieved the needs of the inmates of the prison. And those funds maintained a school for the prisoners' children. All good and well, right? Those are good things. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But all of the things that he was engaged in with the Holy Club came to a head one day when his tutor noticed something about George. He noticed that one of his hands was black. And it was black because it had been frostbit. And he also noticed that George um, was gaunt and ghostly, like very underweight. He also happened to notice that, that Whitfield was wearing a gown that was patched up and he was wearing dirty shoes. In this moment, the tutor looked at him and said, George, you're not okay. And he called for a doctor and the doctor said, you're not okay, George. What's going on in your life that you look like this? And as George began to tell the doctor what was going on in his life, it was as if the Lord, by his grace, began to shed a light on something that had been missing 
in George Whitfield's spiritual life. And we know this because he wrote in his diary this about this time in his life. God was pleased to remove the heavy load to enable me to lay hold of his dear son by a living faith and by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me even to the day of everlasting redemption. Whitfield began to learn of something that um, the church calls free grace. And if you know Whitfield's story, he began to preach that that message that, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And his preaching helped usher in what is known as the first great awakening. This was like a, a series of revivals that swept Britain. It swept through the 13 North American colonies in the early 1700s. What happened to Whitfield? Well, he had gotten something backwards. He had, at an early age, come to believe that his efforts, his work, his actions before God is what made God love him. He had built his young adult life on this idea, if I obey, I will be accepted by God. Now, you and I may not do the same kinds of things that Whitfield did. But what we see in the life of Whitfield is the default of our human hearts as well. You and I continually swap the same things. We build our lives around this idea that if I obey God, maybe God will accept me. We may not say it out loud, but we think our obedience to God somehow might earn us some favor with him and consequently will then earn us a good and carefree life with God. So how is it that you and I struggle to believe that God accepts us? And how is it that we face suffering and difficulty at every turn in life? Why is it that when we do experience those challenges, we believe that we deserve better? We are in a series in the book of Romans that we began back in the fall of 2021 called The Reign of Grace. And we have about, uh, I think, maybe two more sermons left in this particular part of Romans that we're looking at this year. And really what we're doing is finishing up what many consider the first half of the book of Romans. Now in the first half of of Romans, we find Paul laying down his foremost thoughts theologically about who God is, who we are, and how God saves and redeems sinful, broken people. And if you have ever read Romans before, you know that it is deep, right? This is like Paul's dissertation. It's like his thesis paper on the majestic scope of God's saving work in the world. It is lofty, it is intense, and it is perplexing. I know that I've been challenged as I've been studying this to prepare to preach and and just just going through it in my own devotional life. I know for you all, um, it's been challenging too because I've, I've had conversations with you. 
I know we've all been challenged through this series to see God in a, in a new light and to see ourselves in a new light. And I pray that you have found yourself comforted ultimately that the God of the universe is both a sovereign king and a benevolent king. Now, as we continue to walk through Paul's explanation of the beautiful mystery of God and his character tonight, I really just want to invite you to see one thing. And here it is. Grace is only grace if it's all grace. Grace is only grace if it's all grace. Now, as we enter Romans 11 tonight, we are once again reflecting on something that uh, Paul has talked about before. It is the problem of Israel's belief, the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel. And this has been a consistent theme in the book of Romans. And you may wonder, okay, okay, Paul, like tonight you're talking about it again. What in the world? Like, what is this about? And, and I know if I were sitting in, in your shoes, I would ask this question. How does this particular issue, Paul, that you continually go back to apply to me? And I appreciate that question. Remember what the scriptures say about itself. All of it is God-breathed, right, and profitable to us. And so for some reason, Paul wants to go back to this theme tonight to help us in a particular way. So even tonight as we go back through this, this problem of Israel's unbelief, there's a point to Paul's method here. So let's jump in. If you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open there to uh, Romans 11, beginning in verse 1. Let's see why Paul keeps returning to this theme. Paul begins Romans 11 with another question, right? This is an, also a, a common method that Paul has used in the book of Romans. And look what he asks. He says, has God rejected his people? Now, Paul is asking this question because back in Romans 10, particularly verse 21, here's what he said, Paul said, God is doing with the Jewish people. You don't have to turn there, but this is what he said. Let me read this. He says, all day long, this is God speaking, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, the tone of that statement by God might lead you to believe that God has once and for all rejected the Jewish people. Like God's patience is over and there is no more chances for them. And so Paul, anticipating that, answers the question for us with three words. He says, by no means. And because he knows that that simple answer might raise further objections like the expert that, uh, of the law that he was in in a previous season of life, he follows up that statement with some evidence to back up what he's talking about. Now, first, I want you to do something. I want you to skip ahead to the very first part of verse 2 because I think the overarching theme of the evidence that he's going to present is found there. And I want you to just see what he says there at the beginning of, of verse 2. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, here we encounter a, a word that we need to look at to understand what Paul is saying about God. It's right there at the end of that, that sentence. It's the word 
foreknew. Actually, the, this word came up in, in Romans 8. We didn't spend a ton of time talking about it, but if this is the overarching theme for the evidence that Paul is getting ready to show us about why God has not rejected his people, we need to wrap our heads and hearts around this word. All right, so here's, here it is. When we talk about the sovereign call of God in the lives of those whom he would save, we've seen that referred in Romans to uh, to, to being predestined or elected here. We also need to understand how God's foreknowledge interfaces with all of that. Now, back in Romans 8, Paul said this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What does it mean that God foreknows and what does this have to do with salvation? Well, Many people think God's foreknowledge works like this. God looked down the corridors of of history and he foresaw that you or I would put our faith in him and he saves us based on our response to him. Or said another way, God looked into my future, Brad's future, and saw that I would respond positively to the gospel and because he foresaw that in my timeline... He saved me because of my posture towards him. God stuck my choice into his plan. But that view does not line up with the fact that God created time and all events in time so that he doesn't look down through history like the corridors of history, but he he looks at history as a whole. So you and I live life and experience life in a succession of moments, events. But God does not experience time like that. Romans 8 and 9 does not say that God somehow foreknew certain decisions on our part, like he foresaw our faith and on that basis he saved us. And let me just say, like, here is why, if, if that's what you tend to believe, this is a serious theological and spiritual problem. If God's choice is based on your choice, you are in, in um, inevitably saying that God's knowledge depends on something outside of himself. It portrays God as learning from us what we will do and then adjusting his plans accordingly. But in, in scripture, and as we've seen in Romans already, we are taught that God's knowledge is not learned Here in Romans 11, verse 2, what we actually see is that God saves, in other words, that he, he doesn't reject because it is based on something else. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5 says it this way. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. For he, God, chose us in him, when? Before the creation of the world. To be holy and blameless in his sight. Okay, so we're trying to answer this question, um, what is foreknowledge? Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption, to sonship through Jesus, in accordance with his pleasure and his will. So Paul's talking about this in Romans, he's talking about this in Ephesians here. What is this about? Well, when the scriptures speak of the foreknowledge of God, it means this. The doctrine of election says that for purposes known only to himself, God himself, 
God chooses those whom he would save. He does not choose them because of anything about them. But in Ephesians here, Ephesians 1, in love he chooses. Salvation is ultimately grounded in God's initiative. It's ultimately grounded in God's grace. So biblically, foreknowledge could be said this way. God foreloved those whom he would save. Or he foreordained them to salvation. So, here in verse 2 of Romans 11, Paul is saying that God has not rejected those that he has placed his love on before the foundation of the world, even those who are currently rejecting him. This is the overarching theme of the evidence he's getting ready to present here and and answer the question that, that he asked at the top of this chapter, whether or not God has rejected the Jewish people. So here is what Paul's point is, though. He is moving us towards some more specific evidence, and he gives two examples of why this isn't true. God has not rejected his people. Look, look at verse 1, back at verse 1. First, he points to his own example. Paul says that, hey, I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying that I'm as Jewish as they come. In Philippians 3, if you remember when Paul is going through all of his previous credentials about what he thought made him acceptable before God, he actually says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is just another way of saying if there was a way to be the most Jewish, I'm in first place. And Paul is saying here that if God can save him... God can and is still saving Jewish people. And then second, Paul points to the example of the prophet Elijah. This is his second piece of uh, more specific evidence in 1 Kings 19 when the people of Israel were disobedient. Remember that story? And and rebellious. But then within that that group of people, there were 7,000 who did not bend the knee to Baal. And in that particular story... Paul is pushing us toward verse 5 to help us understand what in the world God is doing with the Jewish people. So look there with me at verse 4. Let me read that for us again. So too, at this present time, there is, and notice this phrase, a remnant chosen by grace. We've said this before in our series. Paul is coming back to it again tonight. Paul is saying that God has not rejected his people entirely. Like when the book of Romans speaks of the inverse of that, that Israel has rejected God, it means that the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus as Messiah. But within the larger Jewish nation, God is preserving a remnant, a smaller group within the larger group by divine election, by grace. Paul is saying... I'm a part of that remnant. The 7,000 who did not bend the knee to Baal were a part of that remnant. In other words, in the midst of ethnic Israel rejecting God, God's grace is actually still at work. Even the current situation that Israel finds itself in right now, like ethnic Israel, is not hopeless. He is still choosing to save by grace a remnant for his own glory. Now, if you're like me, At this point, you're still asking this question. What in the world does this have to do with me? How does this apply to my life? Well, in the preaching books that I've read, what I'm 
um, supposed to only do right now is give you what's called the nearest application. And the nearest application is this. We are to trust that God is saving and preserving a remnant of true Jewish believers within the larger Jewish, Jewish nation. We are to pray that God would continue to add to that remnant. We should praise God for his pursuing love of wayward and sinful enemies. We should worship him, that, that he is still in the business of saving prodigals and adopting spiritual orphans into his family. But for the sake of answering the question that is on my heart tonight, and maybe yours, what does this have to do with me? I want us to look back at verses 5 and 6, because I think... In part, what Paul is doing here is saying something to you and I that we've got to get tonight. Let me read that again for us, beginning in verse 5. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Again, Paul is talking about what we just outlined. But then notice what he says next in verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If all of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us, if the Bible was actually written in a way that it would fit into every context and culture that would follow it, this is a word for us tonight, friends. So Paul, of course, is saying this, the Jewish people who are attempting to earn God's favor, they are nullifying the very nature of grace by believing it's their efforts and work that saves, saves them. He is absolutely saying grace is always unearned. But Paul is saying something else. Don't miss this. Grace and works are fundamentally opposed to each other. They are on opposite sides of the spectrum. Or maybe we could say it this way. As soon as you add your effort to salvation, you are denying grace. Here's the big thing I want you to see this evening. Grace is only grace if it's all grace. Now, if you're here tonight and you would say that you're a follower of Jesus, I would hope that you would agree with that statement. But one of the things that you and I are called to do in this journey we're on as Christians is to ask the Spirit to help us see where we might be blind to our own blindness. And on the issue of, of what is called works righteousness, I actually do think as a part of, of our efforts tonight to do this very thing, to ask the Spirit to help us, we need to ask ourselves this question. Is there anything that I am believing in or is there any way that I am living that functionally says I am putting my faith and trust in my own actions to earn favor with God? In other words, if, if we're being really honest tonight, who or what do I believe saves me? Who or what do I believe saves me? And one of the ways I think that we can get at this question is by dealing with a, an issue or a topic that we all face. And I trust the Lord, like if this isn't something you're necessarily going through right now, I, I just know because of the very nature of what I'm going to talk about, you will be facing this sooner than later. I'm going to ask it as a question. What do you do? What do you feel 
What do you think when suffering comes into your life? You may know the story of Jonah. God came to his prophet Jonah, said, hey, I want you to go to this nation called Nineveh, and I want you to take the gospel message to them. I want you to tell them to repent and to believe in me, the one and only true God. If you know the story of Jonah, he immediately runs the other way. He actually jumps on a ship that's literally the exact opposite way of of Nineveh, and he gets on this ship that's headed to a city called Tarshish. While Jonah is on that ship, a storm, a violent storm, hits them. Now, in the story of Jonah, you can't help but miss this. God sends the storm. So we have to ask the question, why did God send the storm? Like one of the things we do in the church, I think pretty easily is we say, like it comes pretty easily to say God allows suffering, right? If God sends the storm, he's sending the suffering here. So why did God do this? Why did God bring suffering upon his servant, Jonah? Well, in one sense, we could just say it this way. Jonah had been commissioned to preach grace to a city that he hadn't yet experienced in his own life. God knew this when he called him to it. But this storm was, listen, an intervention. What is an intervention? Some of you know it's, it's where a bunch of friends get someone who's got a serious problem in a room somewhere, surrounds them in love, but confronts them in a way that they are, are there to serve them and to say, hey, look, you're, you're not in a good place. There is something tragic going on in your life, and, and we want to call you to wholeness and newness of life, but you have a choice, and you have to make that choice. And so in the boat, Jonah can either admit this truth that he's, he's being cornered here and live or deny it and live stuck in his despondency. God is surrounding Jonah in the same way saying, until you see that you are out of control of your own life, that, that you are not the big shot that you think you are, that you are not as competent or as strong as you think you are, until you see that, you can't see me. By the way, that's how God disrupts our self-focus in our lives many times, through storms. And in our lives, it goes like this. We've built our lives on some kind of goal. Maybe it's a, a certain relationship. Maybe it's a certain job. Maybe it's that we want people to think we have good kids. Maybe it's that, that we want a carefree life, and so any difficulty or suffering feels like an injustice. Maybe it's just to be perceived by others in the church house that we are spiritually mature. Maybe it's to achieve some place in life that we think will once and for all give us a sense of significance and importance, especially in the eyes of others. If you've lived life for any period of time, you know that those goals many times don't get met in the way that we thought they would. They aren't coming to pass in our lives. 
And unfortunately, what we do is we begin to look at God and say, I deserve better. Here's what I mean. Functionally, we are treating God as if his good blessings, his righteousness should come to us because we've done certain things to deserve it. I mean, after all, God, I've been a good person. I've been a good parent. I'm trying to be a good spouse. I'm, I'm trying to be a good boss and coworker. I'm trying to be a good Christian. God, surely those things count for something. That kind of inner dialogue with God is called, listen, works righteousness. If you believe that your efforts have earned you good favor from God when suffering comes, you will say, this isn't fair. And the tell is this, when the storm comes into your life, what is your reaction to God? Is it confusion? Is it frustration? Is it anger? Is it despondency? If so, it is likely that though you may not articulate it in this way, your feelings, your emotions, and maybe even your words are saying to God, I don't deserve this. I deserve better. Now, I know some of your stories, some of you that are sitting in this room tonight, and you have walked and are walking through a, a violent storm right now. But the story of Jonah, I think, is intended for all of us to come to this place of understanding about God. No matter what the storm is, no matter what the suffering is, God sends storms into our lives in order to bring us to a place to ask, do I owe him every ounce of my love, every ounce of my allegiance, and every ounce of, of glory? Do I look at my life that way? Like, do I acknowledge him maybe with my words, but the actual day-to-day -day way in which I go about running my own life, it actually says, I've got this under control. God sends storms into our lives because he wants to know if he's Lord. If we're honest, we don't give God much love, not as much love as he deserves from us. Instead, a lot of what our lives really reflect is that we, we can make all the decisions that we need to in our lives because those decisions hinge on our own joy, our own satisfaction, our own pleasure, and our own glory. Listen, if God gave us what we deserve for the way that we treat him and the way that we treat one another, we would be wiped out in an instant. But God is not like that. God is a merciful God. God will never give you what you deserve. He never gives anyone what they deserve. He always gives them something better. He gives us grace. See, the pain and the suffering and the storm that is in your life is there because he has a purpose in it. 
One of my favorite Christmas movies we watch every year as a family is It's a Wonderful Life. I love the movie, but it, guys, that, that phrase is a horrible way to live. Don't demand that from God. Don't believe the lie, too, that somehow your actions will earn you a wonderful life. That sort of approach to God and an approach to your Christian journey, it actually does what the Jewish people as a nation have done to God, and it nullifies grace. Praise God that he will never give us what we deserve. Actually, in the story of Jonah, he realizes that the only way in which he can save himself and the sailors on the boat is if he throws himself into the ocean. Would you do that, by the way, if you were in that position? Jonah, though, in order to get to that place, to do that radical step, he stopped making excuses. He stopped any defense mechanisms. He stopped any rationalizations. He says this, this is what I deserve. Jonah gave up his own efforts, and he threw himself into the waters. And here's what the waters are meant to represent in the story of Jonah. All grace. See, because without knowing it, Jonah was walking in the steps of Jesus, who would one day himself say, as Jonah went into death for three days and came back out, so will I die and rise again. Jesus didn't deserve to drown, but was the ultimate substitute for us on the cross. He was thrown into the wrath of God so all of that could be paid for so that you and I could have, just like the sailors had, nothing but the sunshine of God's grace. Friend, if you recognize that, that you have a God who substitutes himself and gets rid of your sin that way, then you have the real God. I personally, I can't believe in a God who didn't substitute himself that way. Because how can we live in a world of real pain and, and, and suffering and worship a God who is immune to that? Friends, he's not. This is a God who knows what storms are like because he came into the world in the form of Jesus and dove straight into the greatest of pain, into the greatest wrath, and into the justice that needed to fall on you and I because of our sin. And now because of that self-substitution, you and I have life. Grace is only grace if it's all grace. And because of Jesus' substitution, we can receive that grace. We don't get it through our effort, but we get it by receiving it as a gift. Will you receive it today? It's there for the taking. Let's pray together.